All right. Looks like we we are live. We'll see in a minute, but uh, it is. It came up, so I would assume that it's going to work. Let's see here. We have uh, uh, a little off my normal routine because we don't have Jim here today. But I guess we're going to start with Psalm 119, verse 57. Let's see here. Heth, you are my portion, O Lord. I have said that I would keep your words. I entreated your favor with my whole heart. Be merciful to me according to your word. I thought about my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies. I made haste and did not delay to keep your commandments. The cords of the wicked have bound me, but I have not forgotten your law. At midnight, I will rise to give thanks to you because of your righteous judgments. I am a companion of all who fear you and of those who keep your precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of your mercy. Teach me your statutes. All right, so here we are. It's a Thursday night Bible class. We've got a big, big crowd today. Rick just walked in, which brought us to three people. So uh, we're uh, we're doing pretty well here. I, uh, I, he didn't uh, say nothing in there when he arose at midnight, whether he went to the bathroom or not. He rose at midnight, probably <laughs> to go to the bathroom and then go ahead and praise him in the process. Every night I wake up, you know, I, I, there's no reason. I don't need to say why, but every night I wake up yeah. in the middle of the night. And I get up and I go downstairs and I spend the rest of the night on the couch. And I've done that for uh, one, two, three, about five years now. Since Well, I'll tell you why really quickly. It's because we used to leave the house unlocked and we, we didn't even have locks on the doors. And the garage was open and somebody came in and stole all my garden equipment. And so I uh, it just flipped me out because we've never had crime there, ever. But after that happened, I've just been down on the couch every night after midnight. And I always have... My uh, friend Smith and Wesson, they stay with me down there. Anyway, um, uh, it just screwed me up. The next day I went out and I bought locks for the whole house and everything is like a, a you know, like a armory now. It's just terrible how the world has changed. But that's the world. And uh, so that's why I get up at midnight. But every night when I do, I get up and I praise the Lord. So it's literally true with me. Yeah. But um, uh, we have uh, the prayers for single people who need Jesus. We've got that list. and. Uh, uh, I'm not going to go individually through the list, but we want to remember them. I've got the list, and I keep it here all the time. And uh, when it comes to mind, I pray for the people on the list. And uh, we got other people that have emailed some uh, problems this uh, week, and some you know trials and difficulties, and family members having troubles. And uh, oh, gee, one of my friends uh, south of us here in Florida had gotten a big scrap with somebody, and uh, he was all beaten up. So uh, he's a very good Christian, and it wasn't he that uh, initiated it, but uh, you know, things happen in this world, and there's a lot of stress with uh, people being isolated right now, and uh, they can't go out and do the things they were doing. And so we'll just go ahead and go to the Lord really quickly in prayer. Heavenly Father, we certainly thank you for the chance to come here and to uh, meet in your presence. And uh, even if it's just one or two of us, three of us today, then uh, that's wonderful that we can get together and share with the people that are online what's in your word. And hopefully they'll be blessed with this uh, study tonight. And uh, Lord, we certainly pray for the people that need Jesus that are in this list and anybody else that's in our hearts and uh, uh, lives that we know that we care about and we would like to have added to that list in our own uh, uh, minds right now. Please search us out and, and uh, respond according to your wisdom. Lead them somehow to a, a chance meeting with somebody or maybe hearing a word that will affect them at just the right time. However it is that you uh, work things out in your wisdom, we would pray that you would continue to do so until they make the call out for Christ. 
And Lord, we uh, certainly pray for all the people with difficulties and trials. And right now, a lot of people are worried about where their next dollar is going to come from. And is the government going to be able to send them something so they can pay their bills? Or, you know, is somebody going to come and try to take away their house or their car? And we would pray that they would have peace because of Christ and understand that the whole nation is going through this. It's not them isolated, but uh, together as individuals coming together, we can support each other, we can give each other encouragement, and we can do so to build each other up, especially with a word about Jesus and maybe a verse to help them find some peace and ease. And Lord, we thank you for the chance to meet here for this study, and we ask it will be appropriate and that it would be the Bible would be handled properly, and we pray this, that uh, people will be built up and that you will be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I got something. Do I have it here? <clears throat> Let's see. What did I do with it? I had it here. Uh, is there a piece of paper over there on the seat? No? Okay, well, somebody sent me something, and maybe it's in an envelope, or maybe. I just want to read you this. Oh, yeah, somebody sent me a letter. From the Sunday School Times. This is dated uh, Philadelphia, July 21st, 1945. So it goes back quite a ways, and it's a copy that he sent me of it. And it uh, says, The Devil's Toolkit. And this is really relevant to the world right now. So before we get into the Bible study, we'll read this. I want you to think about your own situation and what is it that may be hindering your relationship with the Lord or with you know your family. Um, it's called The Devil's Toolkit. Paul could say concerning Satan, for we are not ignorant of his devices. That's 2 Corinthians 2.11. But some of us are woefully so. Sanctification, sanctified imagination is sometimes useful in bringing out spiritual truth. An allegory in the form of a dream was quoted at the recent student conference at Keswick, New Jersey by Miss Ruth Paxson, missionary to China for 20 years, and author of Life on the Highest Plane, and other books. She does not know the original source, and as she got it many years ago in China, but it is well worth passing on. And so she says, a man dreamed that it was announced that the devil was going out of business and would offer all tools for sale to whoever would pay the price. On the night of the sale, they were all attractively displayed in a bad-looking lot they were. Malice, hatred, envy, jealousy, sensuality, deceit, and all other implements of evil were spread out, each marked with its price. Apart from the rest lay a harmless-looking wedge-shaped tool, much worn and priced very highly. Someone asked the devil what it was. That is discouragement, was the reply. Why do you have it priced so high? Because, replied the devil, it is more useful to me than any of the others. I can pry open and get inside a man with that when I could not get near with any of the others. And when inside, I can use him in whatever way suits me best. It is so much worn because I use it with everybody, for very few people know it belongs to me. Some hardy Christian workers may never be tempted to discouragement, but if the truth were told, they would probably be found to be few and far between. For such as know the temptation, the dream has real lesson. Here are two pieces of armor to keep the wedge from entering. He shall not fail nor be discouraged, Isaiah 42.4. And being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day 
of Jesus Christ, Philippians 1, 6. And so if you are facing discouragement, that's absolutely true. You're discouraged and you start to have all kinds of other problems in your life. It's because you're not fixing your eyes on Jesus. You need to remember that he has made sure promises to us and that we should try our very best to be uphearted, to be encouraged. And I try to, I, if I write a letter to somebody, I try to always say, be encouraged in Christ. Because if you're encouraged in Christ, you are not going to be discouraged. So that was very timely. It came in the mail today, and I want to thank Jeff for sending that to me because it was just a nice letter. Um, okay, we are going to be today in 2 Corinthians, and we're in verse 10, 9. So here we go. Romans uh, 15, 2 Corinthians 11, 2 Corinthians 10. And then we got first, oh, uh, Jim is not here. He says he's not feeling well, but he didn't seem to be uh, overly stressed about it. So I assume that he's just, you know, probably got a cold or something. But uh, we'll remember him in our prayers when we close along with everybody else. Um, 10-9, let's see here. Uh, I'll go back a couple because we'll start with seven, start with the paragraph. Do you look at things according to the outward appearance? If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ's, let him again consider this in himself that just as he is Christ's, even so we are Christ's. For even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for edification and not for your destruction, I shall not be ashamed. Verse 9, lest I seem to terrify you by letters. These words are dependent on the previous verse. Paul mentioned that he might somewhat boast about the authority that he and the others possessed, and authority which was given to them by the Lord for the edification of their audience. In that boasting, he says that he won't be ashamed, lest I terrify you by letters. In other words, even if his letters bring about a sense of being frightened, he would not be ashamed of causing this type of a result. The reason for this will be explained in the coming verses. But he is saying in advance that his boasting in the weight of his letters is not an empty boasting but rather one which bears his authority to act upon what he has written. And because of this, if the Corinthians were terrified of his letters, they should also be terrified of whatever action the letters threaten. If that action proves to be necessary, Paul will carry out what he has written. As a side point, the, wor the wording of the Greek is diaton epistolon, or by means of the letters. It is plural. For this reason, many scholars believe that there is another letter that Paul wrote to them which is not included in the Bible and which is referred to in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 9. This verse may support that theory, but it does not prove it. It could be that he is referring to 1 Corinthians and the letter he is now writing to Corinthians. So we don't want to be dogmatic about that, especially because we might get bit in the process. Life application. Paul is often very direct in his words, as are other authors of the Bible. Their statements which are taken in today's politically correct world would be way too forceful, or the remnants of a less cultured or loving time. Even many of words of Jesus are disregarded because they speak of judgment, they speak of hell, they speak of condemnation. But let us stand on these truths and never withhold speaking them when it is appropriate to do so. Just because the world finds offense at the word of God, we have no excuse to not declare its whole counsel. You know, every time I turn on the computer in the morning and I get all of my morning work done, my daily commentary typed up and, you know, things moved around appropriately, I start looking for news articles for the Prophecy Update. And I do that for several hours and I go back later in the day and I 
look more. And then in the evening before I shut down, I always look more. So I'm always looking for information. And I can't think of a time in the past two to five years that I haven't turned on the computer, started looking for articles and thought we have become a world of babies. Literally, everybody's offended by something. And the Bible, especially, this book will stand right in your face. And if you look at it in its proper context, and not just the gushy stuff that, you know, the uh, apostate churches are teaching nowadays, this book is there for a reason. It's there for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is to convict us of our unholy living. And so when we uh, say something that the Bible clearly tells us that that is what we are to teach and the world gets offended, the, the answer that should come out of our hearts and our minds should be, so what? It doesn't matter if they're offended. What matters is that we are proclaiming what God intends for the world. If the world is a but, you know, I saw, uh, what's her name? I see her all the time in the Daily Mail, Cardi B. I don't know who she is, but her name is Cardi B. And she was, they had a little video of her, which I did not click on, but she's crying because she can't go to sushi. She's, I should be out eating sushi right now. She's crying about it. I mean, is that what your priority is, is that you have to go eat sushi? And apparently she's very famous and she's got all these people concerned about her not eating sushi because we're under a lockdown and wherever she lives. It, it's insane. Like I said, the world is just filled with people that are out of control. They're completely out of control and it's because they have not been schooled in the word of God. So if people are offended by Paul's words, they will be equally or more offended by Jesus' words if they actually look at Jesus' words. And the same Lord of the New Testament is the Lord of the Old Testament. Those hard lessons that are taught all the way through the Old Testament, especially in the Old Covenant itself, are there to school us that we desperately need Jesus Christ. And when we come to Christ, we will find the grace and mercy that his words are not saying to the rest of the world. The rest of the world thinks that all those words of grace and mercy and love apply to them automatically, and they do not. So if you're tuned in today on this Bible study and you think that you're okay with Christ and you have not called on Christ, then you're not okay with Christ and God's wrath remains on you. You need to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ and then all things will find their proper place, including the insanity that's going on in the world right now. It will make sense to you a lot more. I understand people are still stressed over it, but to me, I think more than anything, and we were talking, Burke and I, about it, and even before he got here, I was in the back praying about it, is that uh, people are understandably stressed because of the situation with their finances. Okay, we've got people that have businesses that are, one of the people at the mall I take care of every morning, she had, you know, when you worry too much, you get the, the breakout on your face, what's it? Cold sores. Cold sores all on her face, and I said, you know, you've got to, I said, I knew what it was, and I said, you've got to stop worrying about this. I said, you can't control it. There's nothing you can do, and the entire rest of the world is in this with you. And so your worrying isn't going to change your situation or anybody else's, okay? So I said, it'll be okay. It will be okay. And, you know, she's not a Christian, and I said, I want you to know I've been praying for you. Every time I walk by and I see her, I can see how stressed she is, and I say a quick prayer for her, okay? And, and, but that is the main drive of what's going on right now to me. I'm not talking about the people that are worried about their sushi because they've got millions of dollars and if they're stuck in their house, that's their problem. I'm talking about the people that are really facing economic dire straits right now. Those are the people that we need to pray for and we need to give them words of encouragement, okay? Because those people are really facing times that they have never faced in their life. America's always been this dream where you can come and if you're willing to work, you're going to prosper. And right now, 
that isn't the case. And so, you know, where is our, our help going to come from? Well, I mean, in some respects, and it's true, they've passed a, a bailout bill. Our help will come from the government, but that's not where it ultimately comes from. We need to look to the Lord. Whence cometh my help? It comes from the Lord. So that's what we need to remind ourselves. And I know I'm going off a little bit more than normal on that, but it's really on my heart for these people, saved and unsaved. I mean, they're all friends and they all have these very difficult circumstances and you don't know if they're going to be able to pay their bills or what. So anyway, uh, the first thing to do is to get right with God through Jesus Christ. And then these words of difficulty will not apply to you as much as they do the rest of the time. But Paul is writing to save believers and if he has to be difficult and you know, terrifying to them, he will be as well. Anyway, verse 10, 10. Oh, by the way, we're going to close a little bit early today, maybe uh, uh, at uh, 6.15 or 6.20. And the reason why is because the streaming has been having some troubles. Sergio says it's okay right now, or at least before I turned it on. But so many people in the world are streaming right now that the server is having trouble. He did a live stream. Oh, by the way, watch Sergio and Rhoda's live stream. It's it's wonderful how to make hummus. They did it from inside their homes because they can't go outside. But uh, it's very good. If you get a chance, go to Sergio and Rhoda um, in Israel on YouTube, and you can watch that. And it's, it's a really good video. Um, but there's so many people that are live streaming that uh, the live stream may fail at some point. And if it does, I'm going to have to go home and I'm going to have to take the recorded copy and I'm going to have to do what I do on Sundays. And it takes a long time and it's a lot of work. So we'll close a little early today and I apologize about that. So let's get back into this quickly. 1010. Um, for his letters, this is speaking about Paul, his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Paul now notes how both he and his letters are perceived by his audience. For his letters, is speaking of the letters of instruction that he wrote to the churches or that he will write to the churches after this letter, some of which are now the epistles found in the Bible. The words, they say, is speaking of the people who received them. They would read Paul's words and come to the conclusion, which he will next note in this verse about himself. Before looking at their conclusion, though, it should be noted that many manuscripts say he said rather than they say. It is in the singular. It could be then that this is Paul's way of writing an impersonal manner. Okay, if it's he said, then he's just writing, you know, about himself kind of in an impersonal way. Um, it's an, in an impersonal manner referring to any individual who reads his words. Or it could be that there was actually one person who was the ringleader of the group who opposed Paul. If so, then it is he who made the charge, which will be specified as the verses continue. Though it can't be determined which is correct, both should be considered. Paul was not without enemies, even in the churches that he established. You'll see that in the book of Acts, and you'll see it in his epistles, okay? And you'll probably see it. I don't think Peter actually refers to that, but he does note that Paul's letters are on authority with Scripture, probably implying that people may have questioned Paul's writings. So one way or another, Paul was not everybody's friend, or I should say not everybody was a friend to Paul. Concerning the letters, they are noted as weighty and powerful. This is surely the case. History has borne out that Paul's letters have the greatest weight and the utmost power. They have been studied for 2,000 years, and yet they still produce hidden treasures for us to consider. Within them are special words which have been used in unusual and particular ways to bring forth the most precise doctrine. There are numerous patterns which permeate his writings and which show the highest of intelligence 
and the sure mark of inspiration. <clears throat> they are the greatest of treasures for the hungry human soul who needs to understand the grace of God, which is found in Jesus Christ. And as I said, we have 2,000 years of people reading. that You're talking about, let me hold this up so you can get perspective of what I'm talking about. Paul begins in the book of Romans right here. Okay, this is Romans 1, and he goes through the book of Philemon. All right, right there. That's it. That is Paul's letters in the entire Bible, and yet they are outside of, uh, you know, you got Peter, you've got John, you've got the Gospels, but for the most part, this is where biblical doctrine comes from for our dispensation, right here. And people have been studying these few, few pages, and they have been looking at the Greek, and Greek is a much precise language compared to the Hebrew. It's very precise. You get tenses, and you get, it's a very precise language, and yet, People have been arguing over these few pages for 2,000 years. And even to this day, people will come to conclusions about patterns that are in there that nobody has ever seen before. I mean, I've read uh, some commentaries where there are chiastic structures in Paul's writings that, you know, people just are finding in the past 20, 30 years. And to think that they've been there all this time. I found a chiasm in uh, Numbers chapter 3. Was it Numbers 3? Uh, yeah, Numbers 3, just this past week while I was doing the sermon. So there's a chiasm that will be included in the sermon, Numbers 3, uh, I think it ends in verse 21, so it would be about 18 through 21. There's a chiasm in it. Actually, I was wondering, how am I going to complete this sermon? How am I going to make it tie together? And that chiasm actually answered some questions I had in there. But this is the way the Bible is. It's It's got these things in there, and it just takes study to help you understand those type of uh uh, rhetorical devices. You've got parallelism, you've got chiasms, you've got uh, this and that and one thing and another. And people have been reading just these few pages out of the Bible, and they've been getting wisdom and doctrine out of them for 2,000 years. And we can correct other people's doctrine, which is incorrect, if we know how to properly handle it. And yet, if you look at how small these are, I, I, I don't know. I'm just making a guess, but I would venture to say that 90% of the people in Christianity have never spent the time reading these once, much less again and again and again and feeding on them. So I hate to beat that to death as well, but this is of the highest importance is knowing this word. As we've seen in all of the Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus uh, numbers, and now Deuteronomy sermons, Paul's letters in particular are the ones that are the patterns come from. The Lord is making a pattern in the New Testament which points to Christ. Paul is the one that explains that. And we see it again and again and again. So please read your Bible. Understand that this is the Word of God and that God really has things in there that are important for us to understand. Okay? Um, we'll go on. Let's see here. Um, 2,000 years people have been studying these things. And we read these letters, especially Paul's letters, to understand the grace of God which is found in Jesus Christ. Something just came to mind. I'll say this before I get back into the commentary on this first. Somebody uh, posts a blog every single day, or well, not every day, but I, when he posts it, I get a uh, uh, you know a notification in my Gmail, and I go and I read it. And he posted one yesterday, I believe, and so I read it. And um, he may have posted it two days ago, and I read it yesterday. Anyway, it was so interesting. You're going to love this. I know you will. Uh, Rick, you'll probably enjoy this too, but I know Burke will really love this. The book of James. This is one of those things that you can read the Bible again and again. I've read it how many times, and I never, I could have been reading this Bible for the rest of eternity and not found this pattern, and yet it is marvelous. If, uh, if I think of it, uh, it, 
and you email me, I'll send you a copy of this. Now, this was a guy that gave a commentary, but what it was was based on somebody that did a sermon uh, in Australia. So he gave credit to the person that did this. And I don't know if that person found this pattern, but the blessing of Jacob on his 12 sons in Deuteronomy, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Genesis 49, I believe is the chapter that's in. He blessed his sons in order, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, all the way down, right? Okay, the book of James, the book of James follows the pattern of those blessings. It goes from Reuben the son to, uh, what is it, Reuben, Simeon, he shall hear. And then he talks about the hearing the word of God. And then uh, what's the next one? Levi is attached and he talks about how you're attached. It follows the pattern of the blessing of the 12 sons of Israel. And as I said, I could have read that the rest of my life and into eternity, and I never would have discovered that. The Lord reveals his words to people that are willing to study it and to say, maybe there's something here that I've overlooked. And he'll have a little wheel going in the back of his head saying, well, I just read Genesis yesterday and I'm reading, uh, what do you call it, uh, James today. It's, it's amazing. Never stop reading this word because it is, I couldn't believe it that I read that how many times and I never even would have considered it. So please read the word of God and think on the word of God. Meditate on the word of God as it said in our, uh, our uh, opening psalm today. If you do that, you will do well and I know that the Lord will be pleased with your efforts. I know he will. Okay, once again, we'll finish up this commentary on 1010. Um, just speaking about the grace of God, Paul's letters, but his detractors looked at his letters as somewhat of a contradiction to him as a man. Despite his letters being so weighty and so powerful, they note that his bodily presence is weak and his speech is contemptible. Does that remind you of anybody in Scripture? Moses, Moses, I, I slow of tongue and speech and blah, 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 right? Yeah, so you can see God took these two men who were weak in the spoken word and he used them to give us his word, to show us that the glory came from God and not from man. Okay, Paul is speaking these people. He's speaking out the oracles of God, then he writes them down. And yet he's, as he admitted himself, his bodily presence is weak and his speech is contemptible. All right? The weak presence, what was that? Mine says unimpressive. Unimpressive, yeah, unimpressive, very well. Um, the weak presence of Paul, or the unimpress, uh, unimpressive presence of Paul, is hinted at throughout the book of Acts, as well as his own writings. He carried afflictions with him, and he said he seemed to need to be accompanied everywhere he went. We talked about that during the Acts study, and if we finish up uh, Paul's epistles, we can go back and do Acts again, and we'll have it on a recorded video because it is a marvelous book to understand. Once you understand the book of Acts and you take it in its proper context, your doctrine throughout the rest of your Bible interpretation will be sound. Isn't that, do you agree with that? You were here for some of the Acts studies. Oh, yeah. Okay, if you understand the book of Acts, you will not make 99% of your theological errors that you will make without understanding a proper interpretation of the book of Acts. That's why we started this uh, church's studies, which were not recorded in the book of Acts. It is a marvelous book to understand proper doctrine. But we will get through Paul's letters before we do that. But it is a marvelous book to go through. Okay, and I will hopefully go back and I'll do a commentary, line-by-line -line commentary, after the book of Revelation, which we'll finish up in a year or so. And then from there, if we're still not raptured out of here, we'll start a line-by-line -line written commentary so you can have that, and then we can do a study on it someday. But anyway, the weak presence of Paul, as I said, is hinted at throughout the book of Acts as well in his own writings. 
He carried afflictions with him and he seemed to need to be accompanied everywhere he went as if he couldn't take care of himself as he traveled. You'll see that in the study of Acts. The contemptible speech is literally speech of no value, or as they translate it, unimpressive, speech of no value. Charles Ellicott thinks this means either a weak or unmusical voice or the absence of the rhetorical artifices, the exordium, divisions, perorations in which Greek audiences delighted. With these infirmities, those who opposed him made the supposition that there was a disconnect between what he wrote and what he could actually carry out. In essence, they felt assured that his letters were mere braggadocio and that there was no true authority in the man himself to enforce the words he wrote. He will correct them on this. His challengers mistook his humility and physical weakness as a weakness of character and as an inability to exercise his apostolic authority. Instead, however, these were actually strengths which they had misunderstood. Interestingly, this verse shows us an amazing parallel between Moses and Paul. See, you got that right. When Moses was given his commission at the burning bush, we read his words of response to the Lord. He said, oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant. So all of his life, he's not been eloquent of speech. And all of a sudden, the Lord is speaking to him. And he didn't change. Even with the word, the Lord speaking to him, his word did not change. Okay, which he might have assumed would happen. If I'm speaking to God, I'm going to suddenly be perfected or something. And it didn't happen. But I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. We see that like Paul, Moses' speech was contemptible, or as that says, unimpressive. And yet human history has never seen words more weighty and powerful ever than those of Moses. We've been going through the books of Moses now for eight years, maybe. I don't know. Like I said, I'm in Deuteronomy 1 this weekend preaching, but 3 in typing. And it never ceases to astonish me how much information is in there. And I read commentaries a year later on the same passage I preached on and how much I missed and how terrible I feel that I did not present the full amount, but nobody could. His words are unbelievably, unbelievably huge in what they they present to the people of the world. And obviously, they aren't just the words of Moses. They are the words of the Lord to and through Moses. It is of great interest that the Lord chose these two men with these similar impediments to reveal his intentions for the people of the world. Moses revealed the law, while Paul explains grace. Think about it. Two people that can't speak properly, and yet one of them gives the law of Moses, which the whole world is bound under, and then Paul explains grace, which the whole world can be free in if they simply come to him. But the parallel between the two doesn't stop there. In verse 10:1, Paul spoke of the meekness and gentleness of Christ, which he possessed, and how he was lowly among them, meaning humble. Moses, likewise, was characterized in this way, being called very humble, more than all men who are on the face of the earth. That's Numbers 12, verse 3. I analyzed that in the Numbers sermon, and I think I gave a couple different options on that. There are some opinions on what that means, but most translations say that humble more than all on the earth. The Lord appears to have chosen these men for their weaknesses so that his power could be revealed through them. He also chose them for their humility, so that his own compassion would be more fully understood through them as well. 
Those who challenged both Moses and Paul underestimated the true power that they held, and they ultimately strove against the one who commissioned them in the first place. Okay, before we read our life application, we'll take you back to Acts chapter, where was Paul um, uh, commissioned by the Lord Jesus? The Lord's words, not nine. chapter 9. I was wondering if I could fool Burke, and I never can. It is chapter 9. Okay, it says here, we're going to go to uh, start with verse 10. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. He was commissioned directly by the Lord through a man named Ananias. The words were spoken out loud by the Lord to him, and therefore it was a direct uh, speaking. And then we find out that the Lord was with Paul throughout his ministry at key points. But uh, uh, Paul, who was unimpressive in his speech was also one who was commissioned by the Lord. He has all of the authority of the Lord. And you have to think, I know this is kind of getting back out of uh, 2 Corinthians for a second, but if you think about Paul, here he is, he's a Pharisee. He's on fire for the law. He's on fire for what he believes is the truth of God. And he goes out and he's persecuting this group of people that are a bunch of heretics and a bunch of losers. That's what he's thinking. He's going all over the place and he's persecuting them. He's throwing them in jail. Didn't care if they were men or women. He just had a vendetta against him. And all of a sudden he finds out the truth. And he's in the, not only is he waiting for a word from the Lord, but he's doing so blind. He's there for three days. And imagine the thoughts that went through his head during that time. I've been wrong all of this time. And the things that I've done, and probably every single face that he persecuted in one way or another was coming to his mind and thinking, how, how can I make this right? And what is the Lord going to do to me? Is he, you know, he had no idea. And instead of being chucked into the pit of hell, what happens? The Lord has mercy on him. And he says, you are going to be the one that is going to carry this message out, not just to my people, but you are going to be the main person to carry this message for the next 2,000 years. There are other people that have the same impact, John's writings do and Luke's writings do. I mean, they're all part of the New Testament, but Paul is the main one of understanding the doctrine of what Christ did. Those people told us what Christ did, but you might not understand how it pertains to anything, okay? But when you get to Paul's letters, you come to understand the doctrine. And I am certain, I've said it before and I'll say it again when we get to the book of Hebrews, you'll hear me say it several times, I am certain that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. There are several very good reasons why, and uh, uh, probably one of the most weighty, which I don't even know if I did in the uh, Hebrews commentary, is that E.W. Bollinger did a study of all of the words of the New Testament, how many times they appear in certain places. And if you add in the book of Hebrews to Paul's letters, it makes patterns of numbers of seven or numbers, even number or whatever. The patterns are astonishing. And he went through all of them. He says, very rare word. It's only used here, here, and here. And it's also used once in Hebrews. And he fits it all together. So it's, 
it's pretty certain that uh, Paul is the uh, author, but there are other reasons besides that which we discuss in the commentary on Hebrews, which we'll get to in, uh, let's see, it's 2020, we'll be there by at least 2027, I think. So, anyway, we'll get back into this well, for now. Um, Paul got woke up and the Lord said, you're persecuting me. And you're persecuting me! You know, he, he wasn't directly doing that. That's right, he was persecuting God's people, and when you persecute God's people, you are persecuting the Lord Jesus Christ, because we are the body of Christ. I know there are people out there that say the term body of Christ is never used in Scripture. Yes, it is. We are one body, and it, it, it may not say the words exactly body in Christ, but like the word rapture isn't used in the Bible, that doesn't matter. If something is taught implicitly, it is taught, and we are the body of Christ. We are being built up into a spiritual body, on and on. There's probably eight or ten verses that give you very clearly we are the body of Christ. And if you are persecuting the body of Christ, you are persecuting Jesus Christ. And at the time, guess what? There were no Gentiles. There were no Gentiles in the church when Paul was persecuting the body, right? And yet hyper-dispensationalists come along and they say, oh, there's a different gospel and a different body for Jews and for Gentiles. Once again, it's proven false. It's a heresy. It's not to be listened to. And people that teach that are going to have to face the Lord in their poor doctrine. Life application for verse 10. Let us never assume that someone of humility is weak and ineffective. Let us also never assume that one who is physically infirm is incapable of accomplishing great feats of strength. Instead, let us look at these aspects of the person and see how the Lord can work through them to reveal his own greatness. Now, this isn't speaking about a uh, Christian um, teacher or anything. This is speaking about Pedico Garrett, who is my wife that's 85 pounds soaking wet, okay? I've never known anybody with so much energy and so much ability to carry things through to a, a completion as her. I don't know anybody on this planet that is as hardworking as her, that is as determined as her. And yet, you know, you could just push her over and she'd just, like a feather, she'd be gone. But I've never seen such strength in a person. She is the epitome of Proverbs 31. So, you know, we, we look at people and we make a value judgment based on their size or whatever, and we misunderstand the character which is found in the person. There's a strength that may be there that we had no idea about. You've got something on your mind. <laughs> This one body, I, I, in Ephesians 2. Okay. okay. There's one is mentioned in 14. Go ahead and read it out loud. 16. Read it real loud. Here's what I was getting at in 16. But reconcile them both in one body. Both in one body. To God through, through the cross. Right. Through the cross. They're both in one body. body. Jew and Gentile, absolutely right. Once again, we could go on and on. I did, you know, just, it was, wasn't a very uh, all-encompassing sermon, but if you wanted, if you're, you know, confused about hyper-dispensationalism, I gave enough information in about a 40 or 45-minute talk to at least refute it, okay? It's enough to refute it, but if you want to get every single precept of it, we can do that someday. We can go through all of it, but it is it is a very, very poor handling of Scripture, and it is something that people will be held accountable for, for their poor doctrine. If you are stuck in hyper-dispensationalism, if you believe that nonsense, you need to reevaluate. You need to actually pick up the Bible and read it and understand what is being said. There's one body, it is Jew and Gentile, and there's one gospel. And that all of that, again, where does that stem from? A misunderstanding of the book of Acts. When you misunderstand the book of Acts, that's why we have all of these crazy doctrines, all of them. 
Pentecostalism and uh, hyper-dispensationalism and on and on and on is because people take the book of Acts incorrectly. And if it's mishandled at the beginning of the epistles, which that comes after the gospels and before the epistles, you will have bad doctrine. Everything will fail after that. So please understand how important it is to take the book of Acts properly for your doctrine to be set before you get into the epistles. Okay, life application. Oh, I said that, 1011. Let such a person, speaking of the people that was accusing Paul of, uh, you know, saying that he's weak and this speech is contemptible, his presence is weak, uh, let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when we are absent, such will also, we will also be in deed when we are present. Okay, in words absent, we'll meet with the deeds in presence. Okay, <clears throat> this takes us right back to the first two verses of the chapter. Now I, Paul, myself am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold toward you. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. After that, each subsequent verse has built upon that thought. He was perceived as being bold when he wrote his letters, but when he was present, they perceived him as lowly. They made the assumption from this that his letters were only a facade with no substance behind them. Rather, however, when he was present, he attempted to be meek and gentle, emulating Christ. Everybody see that? That was his ideas. I'm going to be a, a humble person. I'm not going to be authoritative. I'm not going to be dictatorial, etc., etc., etc. And so they misunderstood him. He had the authority to exercise, and he just refrained from doing so. He would rather come to people with a what a flower instead of a, a whip or whatever. I don't know what the term is, but that's the way he presented himself, and now they're accusing him of being weak, and he says, I can be bold. You've misunderstood Paul. Okay, so um, he lets them know now that when it becomes necessary for him to show his boldness, he would not object to do so. In order to show them that this was the case, he begins this verse with, let such a person consider this. It is a way of introducing his next words, asking for sober consideration of them. He would not have said it that way unless he really wanted them to think it through. And the thought to be presented is that we are in word by letters when we are absent, such we will also be indeed when we are present. Not indeed, indeed when we are present. Translators insert a few words for clarity here. Instead of such we will also be, it should read such we are. The reason is that if Paul intended it to be in the future tense, he would have expressed the verb. As he did not, it implies that it is in the present tense. The character of the person in the letters is the same as the character of the person at all times. It didn't matter if he and the apostles were present or absent, they were consistent in their deeds and actions. Life application. The Bible is God's word to us. It reflects who he is, and Jesus is the one who reveals him. He is the subject of our being able to comprehend who he is. His word, while he is absent, reflects who he will be when he is again present. Therefore, though he is loving as his word describes him, he is also just, righteous, and holy. He will not spare those who reject him. 
what is your impression of Jesus? If it's coming from the Episcopal Church or the PCUSA or a bunch of other churches out there today, they're giving you a false Jesus. They're giving you a Jesus that will accept homosexuality. They're giving you a Jesus that thinks it's okay to do this and that and one thing and another, and there is no accountability for it. And that is not the Jesus of the Bible. If you are not in Christ, you are an offense to God. There's no other way around it. You're an offense because your sins have separated you from your God, okay, so that he will not hear. When you are in Christ, he still expects us to be obedient to his word. It doesn't mean that we're going to lose our salvation. If we're not, it means that we will be judged at the Bema Seat of Christ for rewards and losses. And what good is it spending all of your life frittering it away and not pursuing Christ when you have all of eternity, all of eternity to stand in the presence of God and to wonder what it could have been like if you had just been obedient for a few short, short years of your life, okay? <clears throat> He's not going to spare those who reject him. So the only way to know how he will treat you is to know his word and what it expects of you. Don't believe the lie that he is not in person who he is in word. And I'd like to stop right there talking about Jesus. I just said here, it says the Bible is God's word to us. It reflects who he is, God, and Jesus is the one who reveals him. Well, my commentary typing today, I believe, was 1 John 2.23. Let me go there and it may be... Uh, 1 John 2, 23. <laughs> yeah. Whoever denies, I'm going to go back. I'm going to read verse 22 first. Who is a liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. He is antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Okay. Jesus is the one who reveals the unseen God to us. The Father is revealing himself through the person of Jesus Christ. That's the only way that we're ever going to see God the Father. As Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. That's right. It will not happen any other way. God, if you were to see God the Father as God the Father, you would have to be infinite because God is infinite. We cannot see an infinite. There's no way we can take it in. We could spend all of eternity, forever and ever and ever and ever, which is infinity, and never see it all of God the Father. Jesus Christ is the one who will forever reveal God the Father to us. If you deny the Son, you do not have the Father. If you have the Son, you have the Son and the Father. There's no other way around it, okay? That takes immediately care of the heretic John Hagee, who says that Jews are saved through adherence to the Torah. They do not have the Son. They do not have the Father. Muslims deny the father-son relationship. It's a sin of shirk. It's the highest sin of Islam is to say that God has taken unto himself no partner, meaning a son, specifically speaking against Christianity, and therefore they are antichrist. This is the doctrine of the Jehovah's Witnesses. They deny the father-son relationship. Now, of course, they say he's the son of God, but how did that come about? You have to understand the theology of the Jehovah's Witnesses to understand that he is not a father in a begetting sense, but in a created sense, like, um, you know, I created chocolate pudding over here, and that's my son now. Okay, that's what I would call my son. It's not a son. It's just something I created, and that's what they hold to. The Mormons say that Jesus was a man who became God, and someday you will become a God if you're a Mormon. Okay, you'll run your own little universe. The father-son relationship is one of the principal doctrines of the Bible. And if you get away from that understanding that Jesus Christ is God, 
he was begotten of the father, then you do not have the father because you do not have the son. If you deny that fundamental precept, then you're calling on a false Jesus, and therefore you will not be saved. God is still angry at you. His wrath remains on you. So just keep that in mind. When I said that in this particular life application, it continues all the way through Scripture. You're going to see that coming up. Okay, 12, 10, 12. New paragraph. <clears throat> For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. It sounds like Hollywood, doesn't it? Okay, Paul has been speaking of the, they all hand out these little awards to each other and they compare themselves with themselves. Okay, that is not a wise way of doing anything. Okay, they are the most messed up bunch of people on the planet. Every one of them has had 27 divorces. They've all been alcoholics and they're all in rehab all the time. They've got their little spiritual gurus. Who would want to emulate that, right? Okay, Paul has been speaking of the perception of him by some of those in Corinth. In the preceding verse, he let them know that the person he is in his letters is who he will be in their presence. Understanding that, he says, for we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. The Geneva Bible notes that he is actually speaking in a taunting manner. The words form an assonance, which is lost in English, but which reveals his demeanor towards those he is challenging. In his words, but without doing so again, he alludes to the accusations of self-commendation that he has written about several times already. These are found in 2 Corinthians 3, 1, 4, 2, and 5, 12. Let me go back and read one of them so you can know what I'm talking about. 3, 1. Do we again, do we begin again to commend ourselves? 4, 2. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And we'll go to 512 because it's right here. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. <clears throat> here in this verse, he doesn't allude to these directly, but rather implicitly through the use of the words, for we dare not. What is implied is that the people he is writing about, however, are doing just that. Continuing on, he says directly, but they, speaking of them, but they. This is the instigators which have been the subject of his words, and now they continue to be. It is they who spend their time, as Paul says, his words, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves. They have a false standard. And then they have used that standard in order to make their evaluations of all others, including Paul and the other apostles. His words do include a touch of irony, though. Let me make a little note there. A touch of irony, though, by saying that he would never compare himself with those who commend themselves. He is actually doing just that. However, it is in a taunt rather than a direct manner. Everybody got that? He would. He's saying... We don't compare ourselves by those who compare themselves among themselves, but that's exactly what he's doing in his own writing. He's making an ironic statement, but he's doing it in a taunting manner. But there must always be a basis by which he can show them that their folly, show them their folly, and so the words are appropriate. By comparing himself with them, he's showing them their folly. That's what I'm getting at. It seems certain that, as in several verses previously seen in the epistle, 
he has the book of Proverbs on his mind. On several occasions, Solomon writes about someone who is wise in his own eyes. One example which Paul may have been thinking of is from Proverbs 26. He says in Proverbs 26, Psalms, Proverbs, wrong way, Charlie, Proverbs 26, verse 12. Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. So there you go. Let me make a note right here. One example which Paul may have been, I said that. <clears throat> As Charles Ellicott notes about Paul's words, of all such self-admiration, one might almost say, of all such autolatry, St. Paul declares what the experience of all ages attests, that they who practice it are not wise. They lose, as the Greek verb more definitively expresses it, all power of discernment. In their lack of discernment, they were looking at themselves and their accomplishments as superior to all others. In doing so, no one could ever meet their supposedly unattainable mark. The inevitable result is that they would condemn everyone around them as lowly and contemptible. Sounds like the Pharisees, right? I'm better than everybody else. And I was listening to a sermon years ago by, uh, what's his name over at Coral Ridge Ministries? Um, uh, oh, come on. Uh, oh, he's dead now. And uh, oh, anyway, uh, I'll remember his name at two o'clock this morning. But anyway, he was doing a sermon about um, a writing of a Jew some years ago. I, I mean, back in well, yes, James, James J.D. Kennedy, that's right, James D. Kennedy, that's who I was thinking of. You saved me a two o'clock wake up. Um, the, uh, he was talking about a, an ancient writing about a Jewish guy that wrote that um, of all of the people in the world, I am the most pious, including my sons, and maybe they are not as pious or something. It was one of these very arrogant things that he was saying. And you talk about somebody that has no idea of his own sin in his own sinful state before the Lord. That is that type of person. He's going to stand before the Lord someday at the great white throne judgment, and he's going to be surprised at how little he actually is and how lack of humility humility he actually had. Even writing that I'm the most humble person is an act of arrogance. So whatever. But I, I, I misquoted what uh, J.D. Kennedy was saying, but uh, uh, you get the, the idea there is that people that think way too highly of themselves are usually people that have a real problem with ego in the first place. Um, life application, Proverbs is filled with wisdom for those who are willing to receive it. The problem with attempting to enlighten those who are wise in their own eyes is that they will never be able to see the true wisdom through their own self-idolizing glare. That's people in Hollywood. It comes right back to mind. I mean, these people, they look at themselves as the greatest thing in the world, and, you know, everybody should bow down to me, and they're all specialists. I mean, they this past week, what's that guy, uh, Sean, um, uh, the, you got Martin Sheen, and then he's got his one son that's like half-brother of um, uh, Charlie Sheen. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Estevez? Yeah, no, not Emilio Estevez. It was another one. Uh, maybe it's I, maybe I'm thinking of the same generation. Sean, somebody. Anyway, he's done a movie on epidemics, right? There was a movie called Outbreak, I think, and he was in it. And so, who are they consulting for an outbreak? This guy, as if he's a specialist in anything. He's just an actor, and he wasn't a very good one anyway. And they're consulting him. You know, I mean, it's it's crazy. These people think that they have the answer to everything in the world when they actually don't know anything at all. They can act and it doesn't take a lot of brains to act. It just takes somebody that is able to be somebody else, which says something about them in the first place. So 
Anyway, not to get too down on Hollywood people, but they're a perfect example of what Paul is writing about. Anyway, 1013. We, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, a sphere which especially includes you. Paul is writing that I live in a sphere. This is where the Lord has me, and this is where I had somebody today that we were emailing back and forth, and he was regretting all of the years that he thinks maybe he was saved at a certain point, but he doesn't know. He knows he's saved now, but he says, I, I very well could have been saved back at this point. He says, all those years I've wasted now, you know, what am I doing for the Lord? And I told him all of the things that he's actually doing for the Lord. And it's recognizable. Anybody that knows this guy knows all of the things that he's doing for the Lord. And you can only do so much. I told him, I was using myself as an example so he can understand. I used to be a great evangelist. I'd go out and I'd talk to everybody about Jesus all the time. I just, if I met somebody, that was the first thing I did was I started talking about Jesus. And I don't do that that much anymore. If I meet somebody and I have time, I'll talk to them about Jesus, but it's not something that I just do. And I told him, it's not my sphere anymore. I don't have the ability. I'm typing sermons. I'm typing Bible commentaries. I'm answering emails and I'm, you know, getting prophecy update stuff together. I've got all this stuff and I'm literally mentally exhausted when I'm out doing something in the world. I want to just tune everything out. And I want to go for a walk in the, you know, down at Spanish Point or something with friends. Okay. That's all that I have the energy to do because I've expended everything. So as Paul is writing about a sphere here, we have a sphere. And you can't say, well, uh, you know, Charlie's a preacher and so he's doing something great for God and I'm not doing. If you're telling people about Jesus, that is equally or more important than what I'm doing. I'm giving you doctrine, but you're telling somebody about their need for Christ. Don't diminish what you're doing. You have value in Christ if you are doing something for Christ. If you are handing out tracts, you're doing something valuable, okay? Whatever it is you're doing, you have a sphere, but use your sphere. Use it to your fullest ability until you're exhausted because that's what we're here to do. We're not here to watch a lot of TV and we're not here to listen to a lot of goofy stuff. Get out there and do something for Christ, okay? Uh, one of the things I know with people that I know personally is the more YouTube videos they watch on stuff like pestilence and, uh, you know, the Illuminati and the deep state and all that, the less they are doing for Christ. That's one thing I know 100% for certain. The more you are watching those type of videos, the more time you are expending on that type of stuff, which has no value, zero. I want you to know that has zero value. It has no value at all in the kingdom, okay? You are misusing your time here for the Lord. Charlie, watching TV, the news all the time. Watching the news all the time. That's right. People go, get overwhelmed. They get overwhelmed with things and they are not doing what they could be doing in Christ, okay? The more time you spend in that type of stuff, the less you are doing what you really could and should be doing for the Lord. You're absolutely right about that. News will rob you. It'll rob you of who you are. If you want to know the news in a biblical perspective, I know a prophecy update that you can watch once a week, and there's a couple others that I can recommend to you, okay? There's not many I will recommend because they get off into all of that other dark stuff, which has no value. So there you go with that. But if you just want to know a roundup of how things fit into categorical aspects of what the Bible talks about, that's what I try, and I try not to get beyond that. No speculation, none of that goofy stuff. Okay, so let's go on. 1013. Um, it says, uh, I read it, I'll read it again because it's been a few minutes. We, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, a sphere which especially includes you. The sense of this verse seems plain enough, but to understand it in context, it should be taken with the preceding two verses. So let me read them really quickly. 
Okay, this is verses 11, 12, and 13. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when we are absent, such we will also be indeed when we are present. For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. We, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, a sphere which especially includes you. Paul spoke of himself and his associates as not putting themselves in the same class as those who would commend themselves. The reason is that in their commending of themselves, they became their own standard of measurement for everyone else, and thus everyone else would seem lower than their supposed high and lofty measurement. On the other hand, he says, we, however, will not boast beyond measure. There was a limit to what they could boast of. If they were their own standard, there could be no limit. But because they had limitations, their boast would be within those limits. And that is within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us. The word sphere here is kanon. Anybody heard that word before? Kanon. We would say canon. The canon of scripture. Okay, kanon. It is a word used only by Paul, and it is only found in 2 Corinthians and Galatians. According to Vincent's word studies, it indicates, this is his words, a straight rod or a ruler, hence a carpenter's rule. Metaphorically, that which measures or determines anything in morals, art, or language. That's why we speak of the canon of scripture, is because it's what determines our relationship with God, our understanding of God, and what he has given us. Continuing on with Vincent's word studies. The Alexandrian grammarians spoke of the classic Greek authors collectively as the canon or standard of the pure language. In later Greek, it was used to denote a fixed tax. In Christian literature, it came to signify the standard of faith or of Christian teaching, the creed, the rule of church discipline, and the authorized collection of sacred writings, hence the canon of scripture. Okay, that's Vincent's word studies. Paul and his associates had a limit which was set by God. They did not boast outside of those boundaries. They didn't claim the work of another. They didn't speak of areas they had never evangelized as if they had and so on. They simply spoke of the authority that they had been granted by God and went no further. Now, I'll stop right there. I just quoted Vincent's word studies, and I always try to offset people's ideas and then cite them and give their name, okay? However, if you go to like something like Grammarly and you take all of my writings and you put them into Grammarly, it'll say this is 92.7% plagiarized, okay? And you'll say, Charlie Garrett's been plagiarizing. No, what I'm doing is I'm quoting something called scripture. And there's scripture already out on the internet, like the New King James Version, right? And so it will say this particular passage is plagiarized, when in fact it's just quoting scripture, okay? And so you have to be careful when you do that, that you check everything. And normally, 99.999% of the time, I'm pretty sure that I've quoted the, other than scripture, I've quoted the person who is given the information. During a sermon, I'll say, Abarim evaluates this name based on, or Charles Ellicott will say this. I think I quoted him today. You want to do that, okay? One, it shows that you're reading other people and you're not just making stuff up yourself, Okay, and two, it is giving them the respect of the fact that they came up with those ideas. Now, you can quote somebody 
by not using their words, and then you don't have to give them credit for it. In other words, they say, you know, uh, uh, this is referring to um, the Babylonian god Marduk, right? And you could say in your own writing, Marduk is what is being referred to here. You're not plagiarizing them, you're rewriting what was said, okay? But when you quote somebody, be sure to give them the credit, because these people are due the respect of the work that they have put into it. Okay, I know that got off on a tangent, but I want people to know that you want to make sure you do that. However, as a large slap in the face, I'll go back and I'll read this one more time. They simply spoke of the authority that they had been granted by God and went no further. That was the last thought. However, as a large slap in the face to those he is especially addressing, he finishes with a sphere which especially includes you. Those who had been comparing themselves with themselves are being told that they are, in fact, not the standard. Instead, they don't even rise to the standard which God had set for Paul and the others with him. Therefore, Paul had a right to exercise his authority over them when he came to Corinth. If necessary, he would do so without compunction. Life application, let none of us think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Verse 10, 14, for we are not overextending ourselves as though our authority did not extend to you. For it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ. Paul just noted that the sphere of influence which he and his fellow workers encompassed was one which God had appointed. And that sphere also included those at Corinth. Excuse me. Mm. Building on that, he says then that we are not overextending ourselves. He had not gone outside of his divinely appointed sphere of influence. Rather, he was perfectly within his rights to claim authority over Corinth. He had established the church and continued to instruct it and direct it. He then gives a parenthetical thought. He says, as though our authority did not extend to you. For whatever reason, whatever reason, some intimated that they, their authority didn't reach out and encompass Corinth. Maybe they heard another teacher who was more eloquent and they thought, this is our true leader. Whatever prompted them to assume that they were outside of Paul's authority, it was incorrect. To confirm this, Paul reminds them that it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ. Paul was the first one there. He and those with him were the ones that came and introduced the gospel of Christ to them. He and his associates were the first to preach the gospel to them, a message which they then received. Therefore, whoever came after them were actually intruders. It was inappropriate for someone else to come along and assume control of the congregation, which was established by others. It was Paul's right, established by God in the granting of the sphere of his influence, to boast over them and to continue to direct them. Okay? Whether it's of high note or whether it's whatever, the Lord has placed me at the Superior Word Church. This is the church I preach at. And it would be inappropriate for somebody to come in here and start saying, well, I'm going to preach on Sunday morning. Okay? Charlie's the preacher. If they come in here, that is not the appropriate thing. That is what Paul is saying there. And this apparently, I, you know, I never knew this because I don't see the live stream. I don't know what goes on on live stream, but there are people apparently that do that all the time on live stream. They get in there and they start preaching something else. Oh, that guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Here's what you need to do, blah, blah, blah. They can go get their own live stream and they can go do their own teaching. They don't need to come in here and start saying all this. And that's why Sergio set up something called 
moderators. Thank you. If you're out there today, thank you for moderating. I didn't know they were there until just not too long ago. And I, what's his name? Doug told me that he was one of them. But I just didn't understand what was going on so much. But they actually monitor what's going on. And people come in and they start saying all kinds of crazy things. And these guys moderate and take care of that. Just like an usher at a church would do if somebody comes in and says, I'm going to start preaching today. Well, no, you're not the preacher. Please leave. Okay. Whatever reason the Lord has put me here, he has. And until I'm gone, it wouldn't be right for somebody to do that. Nor would it be right for me to go to another church and to say, I am, you know, opposing your pastor today because he's, that's their church. If I'm opposing it, I will oppose it outside of his church. And I will do so because of my care about the soundness of the gospel. But I'm not going to do it during the church service. I'm just not going to go show up in there and do that. Okay. That's the way that the world is supposed to work. Life application. In this world, people very quickly take credit for the good deeds of others, but are even quicker to put the blame for what is wrong on those same people. A very good example of this is the office. I can't believe it. I'm just thinking this. I haven't looked at this commentary in eight years. The office of president. Very quickly, this happens. When a new president is elected, if he is a man lacking character, he will do just this. He will take credit for what is sound and properly functioning, even if he had no part in it. I think you know who I'm talking about here. And he will continue to blame his predecessor for eight years for every bad thing which occurs. And when he's out of office, he takes credit for the economy that starts taking off after he's out of office, even if those things are completely his fault or had nothing to do with him. Okay, this the office of president is that way. There are certain people that are delusional. They're I hate to say it, but it's a Democrat party. They ruin things. There is nothing of good value in what they do in the government. And yet, when something good happens because somebody came in and made a right decision, they take credit for it, even though they're the ones that worked against it in the first place. Okay, there you go with that. So uh, watch out for people like this and watch out for yourself as well. Don't be like such losers. They are, com they are corrupt and their corruption is infectious. Okay. Don't emulate what is evil, emulate what is good is the idea there. At the beginning of this particular uh, verse, 1014, you heard me kind of breathe in and I burped and i sorry about that, you gotta excuse me. I have a constricted, the thing that goes down and so I breathe and the air gets stuck. The what? Esophagus. Esophagus, yeah, and I have the same problem when I'm eating as well. Hedico will not let me sit down without a big glass of water next to me because it gets stuck and I can, I, I, I will just, I won't say what happens, but it's very bad. And so she's very wise. I say, oh, I'll be fine today. You know, it's just mashed peas or something. And all of a sudden I can't breathe. And there she is trying to, uh, I, I can't help it. So I apologize if I ever have to do that. The air gets stuck in it. It can't come out. And then I, okay. Anyway, 10, 15, we'll go on. Yes, go ahead. Dr. P.R. Lincoln, somebody was challenging him about his point of view. What's his name? P.R. Lincoln? B. R. Lincoln. B. R. Lincoln. Yeah, okay. Yeah. He's 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 in heaven now. But anyway, he said, uh, uh, "You're not you're not coming here to have this debate. Get your own crowd. Yeah, not my crowd. That's right. Go. <laughs> then I'll come to yours. <laughs> That's right. Go start your own Bible study. Go yeah. start your own church. Go start your own live stream." I, I do not understand how people get into other people's business. A perfect example, which has nothing to do with the Word of God. I'm out there working yesterday, okay? 
at Siesta Key, we're almost empty out there, but I have work to do. The mall is still open. There's several places that are open, and I have to blow off the parking lot. And it happens to be the time of year where all of the gold trees are dropping all of their leaves and all of their gold, and the parking lot, I mean, it was this deep. And I'm blowing it. The wind is blowing in one direction, so I have to go in that direction. I get down to the end, and I'm taking care of it. And this one guy, I'm out at the outlet of the parking lot now. He's in this big, shiny truck, and he stops, and he looks at me. And he goes, what are you doing? And I thought, what business is it of his? I'm working. It doesn't matter. He, he points like the, the, the key is empty. What are you, you doing? Think he was, do you think he was upset because you were blowing on his car? No, he was going by. And I always stop when people go by. It, he was he was there and I was here. He wasn't even up to me yet. But he just wanted to insert his nose where it didn't belong. And if he wanted to, there's no cars on the road. He could have gone way around. You know how it's three lanes. He could have gone all the There's nobody out there. But people have to put their, their business, their nose into your business. And how much more when you're speaking theology? The most important thing that we will ever do in our lives is knowing Jesus Christ and then being doctrinally sound in Jesus Christ. And yet people, like I hear about on the live stream, they're in there inserting all kinds of stuff that does not belong there. If you want to insert your stuff, go start your own live stream and teach all the heresy you want. I have no problem with that. That is your business. But I, I just don't get it. I, I don't get how people can just arbitrarily decide that they are going to take control of a they situation want, they that want, they have nothing to do with. To the they don't want to put in the work. That's that is exactly right. That's right. That but theology, I said it five million times, theology is very hard work. And that's why Bible studies I'm not talking about today because we obviously have a problem, but Bible studies on a normal day will have between eight and fifteen people. And that's it. It's because people just don't want to expend the energy. Now some of the people come on uh Sunday, I'm not belittling them. They're at home and they're watching the Bible studies. And I know they are because I'll see their comments on there. I'm not talking about, I'm talking about in general. When we were at Grace Baptist, how many people, 400 were out there, 500, whatever. And we'd have a Bible study and 20 people would show up. You know, it, it's just not that popular because it's hard work and it's mentally taxing. But thank goodness for people that are willing to pursue the word. It's wonderful. Okay, uh, we're going to get one more verse and then we're going to stop because uh, I want to make sure that this gets onto YouTube if this stream has problems in it. Okay, 1015. Let's see here. Not boasting. Let me go back to 14 and read the context. For we are not overextending ourselves as though our authority did not extend to you. For it was you that we came with the gospel of Christ. It was to you. Verse 15, not boasting of things beyond measure, that is in other men's labors, but having hope that as your faith is increased, we shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere. In just the previous verse, Paul noted that his sphere of influence extended to those at Corinth, even those who opposed him. Therefore, he cannot be charged with boasting of things beyond measure. He can't be because he's the one that established the church. Rather, it was those who exalted themselves that were following this exact path. As Paul had introduced the gospel there at Corinth and established that church, then when someone made themselves the standard by which the church's affairs were to be evaluated, they stepped over Paul's sphere of influence, not the other way around. Continuing on, he notes that his sphere is not in other men's labors. This was a principal tenet of Paul. He sought to establish churches where none existed. It is true that he met with churches established by others, but he did not extend his sphere of influence over them. 
It is one thing for a pastor to go to a different church while traveling and join in the fellowship, but it is another for him to walk into that church and ask for a seat behind the pulpit with the pastor of that church. He has no right to such a position because it is not within his sphere of influence. Now, a pastor may say, listen, you know, I, we've got a visiting pastor here and I want him to come up here and say something and sit down here. That's the pastor's choice. It's not his. If Nobody should even know he's a pastor when he comes in that church. He ought to just be a visitor. I'm visiting from Maryland and that should be it. Nobody needs to know he's a pastor or that he was a scholar at Dallas Theological Seminary or anything like that. You just sit down, take your place in the church and Pay attention to the uh, the pastor, okay? In contrast to inappropriately extending his authority, he had rightly done so. As he says to them, having hope that as your faith is increased, we shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere. The verb here is present tense, increases. As the faith of those in Corinth increases, the fruits of his labors will also increase. In this, he is giving them a delicate rebuke that it is their lack of faith which is withholding the fruits of the labors he and his associates had sown. They were as if stubborn seed, not willing to put forth the harvest of grain despite the many efforts that had been invested in them. However, the present tense notes that their faith is increasing, and as it continued to do so, it would begin to bear fruit. This is the hope of any good spiritual leader. Eventually, the students will be able to stand up and also begin the process of tilling the soil, sowing the ground, watering the land, and pulling up the weeds as they come forth. The cycle of spreading the gospel would continue in the Corinthians as their faith and knowledge increased. Life application. Everything that we do should have attached to it the end goal of bringing the gospel to others until the entire church is built up to its completion. When that day comes, the Lord will call his people to be with himself for all eternity. Oh, I can't wait. Let us never tire as we continue on with this marvelous work began so long ago. We uh, went through a couple verses today. We got in a little side commentary, which I apologize. I get off on sidetrack sometimes, and I hope none of them were boring or uninteresting. But uh, uh, the main thing for today is to remember not only what we just heard in the class, but to remember that really wise note about discouragement, that the devil will use your discouragement to bring you down. And this is a time where people can get discouraged. You know, you're locked up in a house. Somebody posted on the sunrise photo that I post every day. I think she said it's day 14 stuck in my house. I can't go out and I'm getting something like I'm getting discouraged. I don't, I don't want to misquote what she said, but I know that she appreciated going to the sunrise photo every day. And despite some days I may be sick, I may be miserable. I may be upset at an email that just set me off on the wrong tangent. First thing, I should never read emails first thing in the morning, but sometimes I look and then I think I'm going to read it and then I, the whole day is ruined. I try never, never to post anything negative on that sunrise photo. And this is to non-believers. I don't say anything about Jesus except once a year I put the cross in front of the sun and I say today is Easter and I explain why we celebrate it. Other than that, I'm not there to evangelize those people. I'm just there taking a sunrise photo. If they want evangelism, they can come to my Facebook page. They all know on that page that I'm a preacher. But if they have questions, they can email me and I'll answer them, whatever. But I try to never say anything disheartening on that sunrise photo because I want them to someday say, I don't know what it is about Charlie, but I want to know that. They know I'm a preacher, but other than that, I don't go beyond that. And that is my way of evangelizing them on that page. Okay. 
and they need it, especially right now. They need something positive. But on my page, I always try to get an uplifting verse, you know, something from the psalm, something that will get people blessed. But in the end, try to be an encouragement to the people out there for the next seven days or 15 days or whatever it is, because there are people that are discouraged. And when they're discouraged, the Lord is going to, I'm sorry, the devil is going to get his feet into the mix. So treat, please try to be somebody that will be uplifting to others and blessing them. Okay, let's go to Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we certainly thank you for the chance to come to you and to uh, uh, worship you through your word and understanding your word and studying your word and then applying your word to our life. All of that is an act of worship and it's an act of devotion. And help us to pursue that all the days of our life, to come to a wonderful, fruitful knowledge of who you are and take that knowledge and apply it in our lives and towards others so that you will be glorified through the increase of the gospel in their lives. And eventually when the last Gentile is brought in, you're going to bring your church home and then things are going to change and there'll be a different direction in the world. But for right now, help us to be a part of that process of speedily bringing the church to its completion so that we can come and be in your presence forever. There is a need for it for others, and there's also a desire for it for us. So help us to fulfill both in our actions and in our deeds. And Lord, we certainly lift up the people that need Jesus on this prayer list. We lift up the people that are sick and ailing or that are facing financial troubles or whatever worries are in their hearts, that they would be encouraged in you, not discouraged by the devil. And may it be so to your glory, and may it be so in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, great. Now we've got a lot of...